Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Also, Premier Ortho, a division of Premier Healthcare, helping people living with injuries and chronic back, spine, or joint pain to get back on their feet. Premier Ortho, 333-1933. Online at mypremierortho.com. Good afternoon. It is Friday, September 16th, and this is Noon Edition with Mary Catherine Carmichael. I'm Stan Jastrzewski. This week, we'll be talking about sustainable business practices for the next hour. And with us in studio are Benjamin Schultz, a senior lecturer at IU's Kelly School of Business, who is working with the city of Bloomington to develop a sustainable business model. Also, Melinda Cedar, the owner of Worldwide Automotive Service here in Bloomington, and Pam Fisher, the Indiana Economic Development Corporation's Director of Regulatory Affairs. You can be a part of our program, too, this afternoon by calling us at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 877-285-9348. You can also leave a comment or participate in our live chat by going to wfiu.org slash noon edition. Well, I want to start with the issue of, of money, because I think a lot of this comes back around to it eventually. Uh, you know, and we often hear that a barrier to sustainability is money, especially the upfront costs that it takes to do that sort of business. Uh, and Melinda, I want to start with you. You retrofitted your business a couple of years ago to be even even more green. And, and you, I have here a list of, of a lot of the things that your business does. Uh, what about the the monetary outlay that it took to do some of these things? Did you have to ponder the the sort of risk reward of spending all this money to be as green as you could be? Well, we've uh, initially opened in a small building in an industrial park on the west side of town. We outgrew that building and moved to a 9,000-square-foot building, and we needed to expand again. So at that point, we wanted to build our own facility so that we could build it in the manner that we wanted to and make it as green as possible. So we knew that we needed to expand. We knew we needed to go to a larger facility. And for us, it was a wise investment of our money instead of continuing to pay rent that we would own the facility. So the building was going to be built no matter what. The question was how much we were willing to put into that building to make it as sustainable as possible. Now, with anything that you buy, whether it's a car or a building, you can decide whether you want the granite countertops in your house or whether you instead want to take that money and put solar on the roof or geothermal under the slab. As an auto shop, there weren't very many models within the U.S. to show us how green we could make the building. And in some part, we went to Europe to look at how they've been doing it there, which is by putting the heat in the floor of the building. You're talking about a very big building with high ceilings. You don't want to heat from above. You want to heat from below. We also ended up using geothermal, uh, but we did it with horizontal field instead of straight down because we're a limestone area. Going straight down with a geothermal well is pretty much difficult, if not impossible. So when we were looking at the cost, what we had to decide was what everyone else has to decide. Where do you want your gingerbread, basically? Where do you want the assets put? Do you want it with a very fancy stone exterior, or do you want those investments to be made into green uh, attributes that can save you money, that can make the, the environment much more friendly to the employees. The previous building we were in only had windows in the office. The entire shop had no windows whatsoever. Our new building off of Tap Road has windows completely around the building so that there is uh, daylight coming in in all the work areas, whether you be working in the office or whether you're a technician in the shop. So there were a lot of things that we had to decide how we wanted to spend the money. But the, the core of it was, if we're going to spend money, we want to spend it as environmentally conscious as, as possible. And then in the end, it pays off for us when we save not only costs for electricity to light the building because the windows are letting in daylight or heat by taking our heating bills in the old 9,000-square-foot building. December, January, February ran around $1,200 a month for gas. And our new facility, which is 12,000 square feet, we're now down to only paying $400 a month in those th- coldest months of the year for gas. So mm-hmm. you've expanded by a third and mm-hmm. decreased by two-thirds your mm-hmm. cost. Benjamin? Uh, Melinda has a good example of how money applies on a local level, but on a macro level, um, 
uh, money is also used as an impediment or as an excuse not to take on sustainability issues or not to invest in it. But if you look at some of the um, other countries in the world, uh, Germany, for example, Germany has uh, they have high uh, un- they have high taxes, uh, they have uh, unions, they have uh, a very they have a single payer healthcare system. Um, they have very stringent environmental rules, but they're one of the three or four top economies in the world. So what it takes is uh, a concerted effort on uh, an entity, whether it's the city of Bloomington, the state of Indiana, or the federal government, to get behind it and put everybody on the same page, and then it works out. Let's back up just a second. We all know what the word sustainable means, but when we're talking about sustainability uh, for a business, what are we talking about? Do you want to start with that one? Uh, sure, I'd like to. Uh, a sustainable business is, is one that's all about metrics, about measuring. So I look at a business, and if it wants to become sustainable, then you draw a circle around that business, and you measure everything that comes in, and you measure everything that goes out. And so it's all about metrics, um, as opposed to going green. Going green is picking one or two or more of the issues involved in sustainability, typically energy or waste and recycling, and then making some efforts to improve uh, in those areas uh, for valid reasons, but there, it's not anything that's necessarily measured. So if you don't know how what your energy use was uh, last year or the year before or last quarter or uh, two years ago, then you don't really know if you're making progress or not. And if you're only measuring your energy, then there are other hidden costs that you don't under, that you don't see as well. So, so if you're m- producing X amount of carbon monoxide, let's say, then you would actually be planting trees or doing some kind of remediation. Um, to offset that if you're truly sustainable? Frequently, that's part of a sustainability plan. But a a sustainability plan, um, as I said, includes everything, and everything that comes into your business and everything Mm -hmm. that goes out. So every box that you buy, everything that's your packaging, everything that comes in, and then what are you discarding at the end of the day? What's going out the door in the back? Uh, and then once you have that plan, the other part of the plan is to, is, uh, to make it transparent. So typically put, uh, companies put them online so people can look at them and, and say, oh, did you consider this or did you consider that? Or you haven't looked at your packaging. You're getting all these things in, in plastic packaging and then you're just tossing the packaging out. So why don't you go to your supplier and tell them, look, you're w- we're just wasting this. We get it. We open and get the product and we just throw it right away. And it serves no other purpose other than shipping it. So uh, if you can't get us a better package, then maybe we should start looking around for someone else who can. So a, a lot of the, um, the onus gets put back onto the suppliers to, to change their packaging. So that's the point of the transparency? That's Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, the, po- the point of the transparency is to show that you're doing it, and if you're claiming that you're sustainable, then people, your clients and customers and people in the community can go out and lo- look at your, tra- at your report instead of just saying, well, we're doing this and we're recycling. Well, okay, are you, how much are you recycling? Or, and you can say that you are, but if, you, if it's not measurable, and it's easy to maybe fudge the figures a little bit uh, for the first mm-hmm. time, but then next year when you put out or next quarter when you put out, then you've got to measure against the previous figures. So if you're fudging to begin with, then you're building on fudged figures. So there's no, you can't really, um, uh, you can't, it, it doesn't pay to do that. Mm-hmm. It, and it really doesn't matter where you start. Uh, it's just that you're making improvements what counts in your, in your sustainability efforts. Pam, mm-hmm. I want to get you into this discussion. How does the state of Indiana measure, if at all, whether businesses are, are acting in a sustainable manner? Um, I think that um, with my agency, the focus is on having policies that help businesses create jobs in the state of Indiana. So we may be coming at this from a little bit of a different direction. Um, It's unusual for a business to come to us and specifically state our goal is to be sustainable. Uh, More often it is our goal is to be uh, cost effective and, and competitive in this environment. And they find out that being sustainable can help them meet those goals. And I know that you had mentioned um, packaging of uh, raw materials. Subaru, the Subaru facility in Lafayette, Indiana, they're a zero-waste automotive manufacturer. And, um, you know, not only is it a great story that they're here in Indiana, but uh, many other businesses are asking us about this Subaru model. And uh, I know that one of the things that they did was go to their suppliers and say exactly what you were talking about. We have excess packaging. We don't need this. What can you do to help us reduce this packaging? So um, there was another company that I was working with this week that they are in uh, food processing and 
and um, they were looking for ways to recycle all of their food waste and they're sending their so this would be they're cutting fresh fruits and vegetables so they're going to have cuttings and rinds Mm -hmm. and those types of things Um, but they've worked with another Indiana business to come up with um, a composting project which had to go through regulatory approval with the state of Indiana Um, but they were able to uh, roll this out on Wednesday of this week and let their customers know uh, we're hearing what you're saying as our customers about the importance of sustainability and these are some of the steps that we're taking. Pam, how high a a priority is it for the state of Indiana that we start shifting our businesses, our Indiana homegrown businesses towards sustainability? Do you have a go-to person on your staff or or what initiatives is the state putting forward? Sure. So again, you know, I just want to emphasize that the goal is to make it cost effective for businesses to do business in the state of Indiana. So um, we want to ensure that, uh, you know, businesses have access to our programs, but we need for the businesses to uh, determine that it makes sense in their own business model to have sustainability efforts. In other words, cost savings. And I think that the folks that work on um, the sustainability side and communicating your message, anytime you can help a business understand uh, not only is this um, good for the environment and a good PR strategy, but it will also help you save money, that is a key um, item that needs to be communicated to these businesses. Um, but we do have a couple of different programs throughout the state. Um, some of our partner agencies, the Indiana Department of Environmental Management, they have the Office of Pollution Prevention and Technical Assistance. Um, they offer a variety of recycling and uh, pollution prevention programs. And again, many of these um, offer either technical assistance and or, and or competitive grant opportunities. And uh, that, again, is focused on either recycling or pollution prevention. And then in addition, our uh, the state's Office of Energy, they too have some programs that encourage uh, reducing the need of um, electricity in a facility. So it may be um, switching out light bulbs or those types of programs. Mm -hmm. And then also we have our universities too. I know that IU is active in this, but also Purdue has their uh, manufacturing and technical assistance program, which may include energy audits helping businesses identify opportunities to reduce those uses. And are there tax breaks or things like that that businesses can apply for such that they can offset these sort of barrier-type costs at the beginning to install the the what I think a lot of people see as costly technology sure. so that they can more quickly reap these types of cost-saving benefits that you're talking about? Sure. Um, currently at this time, I'm not aware of any tax credit specific for investment Um, Our credits are focused on job creation. So, for instance, if we had a company that was doing an expansion or doing a relocation to Indiana and they were going to be hiring new employees and they wanted to include sustainability of that, they may be able to qualify for credits for the employees that they're hiring and then those credits could help them offset the cost of making those improvements. Benjamin, are you aware of any other states that are being giving better incentives or, or you know, pushing this a little bit harder to, to their businesses? Uh, not at the state level. A lot of municipalities are. I, I know that the state's involved in several programs, one, the Brownfields program they have, mm-hmm. but uh, in which they encourage, quote-unquote, if you read their website, uh, recycling materials uh, when, when um, uh, buildings are brought down or to reuse mm-hmm. old properties that, are, that aren't being used or to tear down properties and build on those properties. Um, but it, the Brownfields program is really a federal program that, that the federal government uh, provides the money for, and the, the state uh, basically they they funnel the, the letters of application through the state, and they get the approval of the state before they go on to the federal government. So the state of Indiana is involved uh, financially in three or four different programs like that, but they're not state programs; they're federal programs, and they're just they're administered through the state, and, and the federal government provides sort of loan guarantees for it. For mm. Now, the OED did have money for uh, energy projects. In, 19, in uh, 2009, we applied for a grant to help fund our solar uh, awnings on the back of the building. We did not receive a grant, but I believe that the Upland Brewery has gotten money through that program. And I want to say Middleway House, but I may be incorrect on that. But uh, the OED does have grant money for uh, the projects. But as Benjamin said, it's coming down through the federal government and being channeled out to um, individuals or businesses 
uh, via the OED. How was your experience when you were building the new facility? Did you feel supported by the you know local government and, and lifted up and helped uh, as you were going? Or did you feel like you were out there with your own machete blazing that trail? Well, I think where we were in the process was that when you go out, there's the U.S. Green Business Council. There are a lot of agencies that have information on building a green facility. But many times the information applies to either residential homes or to very large-scale buildings like hospitals or Mm -hmm. a university building. And being on the small end of small businesses, Mm -hmm. we have 10 employees, including my husband and I, um, there was kind of a missing gap there for smaller buildings, say a 12,000-square-foot building like ours. There weren't very many role models out Mm -hmm. there for us to follow. And being in the automotive trades, um, as Benjamin mentioned, if you have all of these things coming into your facility – whether they're the bad oil in a car or the antifreeze that needs to be changed, you have to be able to figure out a way to handle that properly Mm -hmm. and to be able to make sure that that is – that's something that the customer feels like they can count on for you to do the proper handling. Mm -hmm. Um, When it came to our constructing the building, one of the things that we had to look at was Bloomington's UDO and uh, the planning requirements for where we could site. In our particular case, you can only site an, a, a full-service automotive facility in very few zoning areas because of the fact that you may have cars sitting there for uh, a week or two waiting for parts to come in. Mm-hmm. That was kind of a problem specific to us. So that that's, it wasn't a, an issue. We understand why they had that. But the sum total of their green, invest, uh, their green incentives within the UDO are mainly aimed at people who may be building, say, a subdivision. Mm-hmm. And if they are willing to put in certain items – um, there's lead certification standards, and they drew from the lead certification standards. If you fulfill these requirements, then maybe they'll give you uh, an allowance on a setback. I'm glad you brought that up, actually, because one of the things I wanted to find out from from each of you in your own way, um, and, and Benjamin, I want to start with you, is what are the sort of obstacles, perhaps at the municipal level, that need to be overcome? And it sounds like zoning might be an issue. Uh, it sounds like that you might only have... Uh, you might have an outdated plan, uh, uh, like the Unified Development Ordinance might not be as cohesive with the times as it needs to be. Um, what are what are you finding in, in working with the city that are some of the, the barriers you're hoping to, to clear? Well, actually, um, one of the programs I'm working with the city right now is I've, uh, I'm trying to get the city interested in certifying sus- businesses as sustainable. So I'm wor- working with a group called Local First Indiana. Uh, Local First has uh, about, I think, 80 or 90 member businesses in the Bloomington area, and they focus on uh, businesses that are committed to sourcing their materials locally, Mm -hmm. uh, keeping the money in the community, buying things locally. Uh, I'm also working uh, with uh, um, the Bloomington Area Chamber of Commerce. Um, They have a sort of a sustainability, not a certification, but a recognition program. So there's, um, which is a good first step, and we're we're trying to get their their program in as as an initial step to the certification process. So get people to go through sort of a checklist: Are you doing this? Are you doing this? Are you doing this? And then once they, if they want to go further. Then, then the the program, the certification program, will break it down into uh, according to what business they have. So, if you have a restaurant, then you get one set of checklists. If you have an automotive supply, supply or or repair business, you have a different checklist. If you have a dental office, you get a different checklist, uh, and then it gets and then you get inspections and so forth. So, I, I haven't really uh, the 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 city's encouraging. There's uh, there's economic development grants out there for those sorts of things. Um, I haven't found much um, resistance uh, at the at the local level in terms of bureaucracy uh, to sustainability efforts? Well, there's two elements. I'm talking very much about our business at this point, not necessarily our processes. So when it comes to being supportive of a building through the city's channels, that's a very different animal than being supportive of the practices that go on. We are probably one of the first, you know, green from underground, as we say, with the geothermal to the top of the roof, which is a cool roof technology is a very different building for them to, to deal with. But as an individual business owner and not someone who's building a subdivision, one of the things that I talked to the head of planning about, and he was very open to listening, was what type of incentives are there for businesses? One building that I'm mm-hmm. building, not a housing tract, not an apartment complex, to be able to say, can you at the very beginning understand that this is going to be a green project? Therefore, let's look at some of the more expensive obstacles of building this building, and could we maybe have some waivers? Mm -hmm. Originally, they weren't going to allow our building because 
the whole design I drew up was a metal building. And steel is the ultimate recyclable, you know, product. So the question was, well, then what can I do? We've done this whole design built on a steel building. Luckily, the manufacturer had a steel siding that looked like stucco. Oh. Okay. That was fine. Okay, we'll go with stucco. But it cost an extra $45,000 to change the skin on the building. So the question would have been... What was their objection to steel on the outside? Uh, they, there is a list within the UDO of acceptable outer skins of a building based on what zone you are in. And so it was, it was a question of aesthetics then? It was a question of aesthetics. Mm-hmm. So that would be the nail right there is the aesthetics of a building are critical. I do not want an ugly community. I, if anyone who's seen our building, it's not an ugly building. But the fact is, is sometimes when you're talking about the architectural elements that are required within a building, it would be nice if the city would be able to consider asking for a variance. Maybe you would only need two architectural elements if you were putting on solar awnings. Mm -hmm. Maybe you would only need two architectural elements if you're putting in the rain garden next to the building. Have some trade-offs. Have some flexibilities, which I think Tom's open to. It's just whether or not they've come up with a way to do that in a uniform fashion so that we're not worrying about getting buildings that do not, you know, meet our our visual, you know, qualifications. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, look at how can we give leeway to the build businesses who are small businesses and a $45,000 difference is a big hit That's for a small a business. How, okay, how did that story end? We ended up having to go with the, the siding that looked like stucco and it was an extra $45,000. So what we did was we tabled putting solar on the building. But then we found out we needed three architectural elements facing Tap Road. We already had the windows. We already had a, a, a stucco-look siding and a stone siding. We needed a third one. Well, I got reading, and awnings on buildings can be considered an architectural element. So we just made them solar awnings. If I had to pay for awnings, they might as well have solar panels on them. So we were able to fulfill that requirement. I guess it would have been nicer if there was a way to sit down mm-hmm. and discuss this before we started building. Oh, you're going to go green. What are some of the, the obstacles we see in what you're wanting to do? How can we help you overcome those? And I think they're open to that. But it's been a slow construction in the yeah. last couple of years. We were probably the only building being built in 1990. You, talked, 2009. A lot, you talked a lot about sort of regulations mm-hmm. here. Um, I want to remind, first of all, our listeners to call in 812-855-0811. Or eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. Perhaps some of them have some of the same questions you faced. Um, but but Pam, I want to get back to you here. Um, you talked about creating jobs in a sustainable way, and one of the things we hear a lot about, especially on the national level, is how regulation. And if you listen to Mitch McConnell or Eric Cantor or people like that, how regulations they say can get in the way of job creation. They say they want, let's, let's strip away whatever regulations make sense so that we allow businesses more leeway to create jobs. What is the, the state of Indiana doing in that sort of arena? Are we so regulated that it is hard to build new buildings and thus create the jobs for the people who would work in those buildings? Or uh, is there a fairly lean regulatory landscape here that uh, should make it somewhat easier, do you think? I think that that's a very good question, and I think that you need to look at that both from the state level and also on the federal level. So I, I want to point out that um, air quality in the state of, the, of Indiana, um, the, the monitor readings for the entire state this year are the best that they've been since the introduction of the Clean Air Act in the early 70s. So I think it's important to kind of put it in perspective on where are we in terms of um, the environmental quality of the state. Um, we've made a lot of progress, um, clean air, clean water. Obviously, um, any industrial uh, state is going to have issues that we're going to continue to work on, but the progress has been documented and is tremendous. And, um, working with the Indiana Department of Environmental Management, their goal is to protect the environment and human health. Those are their primary goals. And by doing that, they're regulating businesses, but they also recognize that they need to have policies in place that allow businesses to invest in the state of Indiana. Um, They need to have 
clear guidance and um, understand what the process is for getting permits. I actually think that Indiana excels in this area. Uh, we do a lot of complicated permitting here because we're doing a lot of uh, manufacturing and energy projects. And I think the state does a really good job. So it's important to realize that, you know, a lot of our Hoosier workers are involved in either manufacturing or the utility industry. And we need to have those industries here to provide those jobs. But the federal level is a little bit different battle for our businesses because we see um, increasing regulations, um, again, the focus on, on health and the environment, but it is becoming cost prohibitive for manufacturing to take place in the United States. And I think when we think in terms of the environment and sustainability, we need to realize if these projects aren't happening in the United States where they're being regulated and meeting environmental standards, they're going to end up going somewhere else, for instance, China or perhaps India. They're not going to have any of those environmental regulations. And now we have much more pollution on a worldwide scale than we would have if we would have had regulated businesses meeting their permit requirements in the United States. So I think that those of us in the Midwest – those of us in manufacturing states um, are very concerned about federal policies and the impact that it's going to have on jobs in Indiana. You mentioned measuring air quality. I seem to remember just a few months ago where the governor cut the funds to, for the entity that, that was measuring the air quality so that we're not measuring it anymore. No, we definitely are still measuring air quality. We have monitors located throughout the uh, Indiana. So if you would compare Indiana to Illinois, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but we do have significant more air monitors in more counties hmm. than Illinois does. What was it that I read that he, he did away with the program or he cut the funding to that program? It may have been funding for permitting on the local level. And again, that has been brought in-house, so item would be doing the air permits for um, hmm. all I businesses thought it was measuring in all air I thought it was what it was. I'm I'm sorry. All right. Well, we've reached the bottom of the hour. We need to take a break. We'll come back in just a little bit. We're talking about sustainable business practices here on Noon Edition. You can call us if you want to get in our phone queue during the break. The numbers are 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 877-285-9348. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville, information at smithville.net, and from Premier Ortho, online at mypremierortho.com. You can take WFIU with you by downloading podcasts directly to your PC, Mac, or MP3 player. Programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, and short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Pick them up at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? The WFIU News Team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Catch the Friday feature just after 8.30 during Morning Edition, just before Noon Edition, and at 5.45 during All Things Considered. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. Today we're talking about sustainable business practices with Benjamin Schultz, a senior lecturer at IU's Kelly School of Business who is working with the city of Bloomington on its sustainable business model. Also in studio are Melinda Cedar, the owner of Worldwide Automotive Service here in Bloomington, and Pam Fisher, the Indiana Economic Development Corporation's Director of Regulatory Affairs. You can go to our website, wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, and you can join our live chat there if you have a question for one of our guests. You can also take a look at our Noon Edition Twitter feed or call us in the old-fashioned way, 812-855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Melinda, before the show, you and I were laughing that uh, when the world was young, you were on the show. Uh, when you were, were you with the Monroe County Solid Waste District Correct. at that management yeah, district? I ran, at that ran point? the processing center on South Rogers. Okay, great. So at, at any rate, we were talking about uh, recycling mm-hmm. back then, and, and now we're kind of talking about the newest version of that, but you made the point that it was great when you could get individuals to begin to recycle, um, 
um, but that it was really a much bigger deal when you could get a big company to recycle. And so that kind of uh, spurred some conversation that I thought was interesting that we needed to share um, with our listeners. How What was that like that experience with the Monroe County Solid Waste Management District? Well, it was wonderful because if you empower people at home, they can take that to the workplace. You know, once you start reducing your waste stream at home, suddenly it feels wrong to throw something in the garbage when you're at work. And we used to joke that what you need in every business is the recycling zealot that will be willing to police and and admonish people when they're not using the recycling bins. But it is a commitment to a business to do that. For us, in terms of what we do in our business, we do all the the generic, I would say, recycling that any business can do, be it paper or cardboard or packing materials. But we also go the next step as a business, which is we buy in bulk. So, for instance, if you were talking about antifreeze, we have it pumped in from a truck, 250-gallon tanks worth, that's already premixed. That means we're not throwing away those gallon jugs every time we have to fill up a car. And from a business viewpoint, it saves time for us mm-hmm. because the technician isn't having to, to do the mix. We have canisters there that air pump it into a, a, to a dispenser, and they take it right to the car. We do the same thing for windshield washer fluid. We do the same thing for oil. So buying in bulk means not only are we getting it cheaper because it's in bulk, we don't have the issue of disposing of the containers afterwards, and it has made it a more efficient process for our technicians to be able to get the work done. And so with recycling... You have all the things that you can just take to the recycling center and recycle, but then there's the element of how can I just eliminate that package to begin with mm-hmm. so it's not an issue. Benjamin, are, are other companies making progress along these lines? Um, they are. Let me comment on just further one more comment on the, if I could, on the recycling. Um, recycling is sort of the word is put out there as sort of as a panacea. Oh, well, we'll recycle it. So that's like it's going to magically disappear and come back in, as, a, as right. a new life somewhere. Uh, recycling, when you recycle paper or cans, they have to be picked up by a truck. They have to be trucked somewhere. They have to be put into some uh, manufacturing operation somewhere to turn them back into something. So, yes. All of which takes energy. Yes, it's not going to the landfill, but, yeah, but it's going somewhere else to be processed again. So, really, you're creating another manufacturing process by recycling. Mm-hmm. So, that, uh, so one of the... One one of the um, uh, holy grails of businesses, a sustainable business, is to have a zero-waste environment. Uh, Pam mentioned that the Subaru factory in Lafayette has a zero-waste uh, environment. Uh, a zero-waste environment has absolutely nothing going out, period. So anything that comes in gets used or, or gets composted, or, or if it goes out, it goes out as compost where you can use it in, like, in a restaurant uh, uh, environment where you can use it as something else. Um, and so I think that's a part, in, 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 in integral part of, of the recycling uh, um, and trash and recycling talk is to, is to, is to recognize that there's, uh, there's a, a zero recycling or a zero waste environment mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's, um, that's an attainable goal. But it, it means, as we said earlier, putting the onus back on your supply chain for them to not send you these big plastic containers when you don't need them. Or figuring a way that you can – used to be when you bought a Coca-Cola, you drank it and you put the, the bottle back into the, to the rack. Sure. And then Coca-Cola picked up the bottles and they washed them and they put new Coca-Cola right. in them. So, we, it, I mean, we recycled back in the 20s and 30s and we're not – we just got away from it because it was too convenient to just throw away cans and have them picked up and take to the dumps. You mentioned Walmart was making some progress. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they get a lot of black eyes for various things mm-hmm. It seems. Yes. And so let's talk about that a little bit. It's something that well, people probably don't know about. A couple years ago, I know they I decided that they were going to have a – they were going to operate in a sustainable environment. And uh, it, it's – you might say, well, uh, they don't really manufacture anything, so it's a little bit easier for them because they buy everything that they sell. They buy that in, in, in bulk and then turn around and sell it to, to people in smaller bulk. And it goes out the door, right? And it goes yeah. out the door, yeah. So if you look at it that way. Um, but what they did was they said to all their, their suppliers, they said that, that they wanted them to have a, a sustainable, a sustainable uh, model, a sustainability plan, and they wanted it to be transparent. They wanted it to be online so that everybody could see it. They could, they could measure from uh, quarter to quarter, from year to year, what, how, how, what progress they were making. Um, and so they said if you don't have it uh, on board in, I'm not sure what the time frame was, a year, year and a half, two years, that they would start looking elsewhere to get that particular product. So it was kind of easy for them to say, well, if you don't do it, we'll get somebody else at will. If you're the person who's making lawnmowers and you get your whole family's money and everything tied up in investment in that, uh, that's a different story. <laughs> you mentioned recycling, and I wanted to ask you about the city of Bloomington because I have to admit when I moved here, 
about three years ago. It was different than anything I'd ever seen. I came from Chicagoland where our recycling was picked up right along with the garbage every single week. Two separate trucks came through. And I certainly understand the point you made about a, a new process being added to do the recycling. But it, it strikes me as a barrier to people doing recycling or at least trying to give their stuff back to the city to do it for them that their recycling is only picked up every two weeks. And so I find in my kitchen that we've got these two bins where we separate the paper and everything else. But at the end of the two weeks it takes between cycles, it's overflowing and it would easy it would be easy just to take whatever the excess is and get rid of it in the trash, which gets picked up every week. Um, I was curious what advice, if any, you would give to the city of Bloomington about trying to either offset the cost of this, which I know is something that Mark Cruzan has carped to me about on Ask the Mayor, um, and or I mean, is there is there a better way to to get buy in and not have our recycling build up in piles in my kitchen. Uh, you know, can we can we find a happy medium and be sustainable? Well, two things about that. One is that it, you probably it's not going to be much of an incentive for you to sneak some of your recycles out in your garbage because you have to pay to have your garbage picked up. So, <laughs> you, and you don't have to pay wisely. Bloomington does that. There are communities I know of that do it just the opposite around. They charge you for your recyclables and, and they pick up your garbage for free. So, <laughs> why would you want to recycle if they charge you for them? No, that seems like the ultimate wrong way to do it. No, that's true. Uh, the other way is um, I live in a, in a household of three, sometimes four people, and we put out a regular about 32-gallon trash can uh, once every five or six weeks. Uh, and so we make a concerted effort. First of all, not we, we are our own supply chain, so we watch what we bring into the to the house. So we, we, we shop at Blooming Foods or the farmer's market, and we take recyclable bags with us when we go to, the, to, to there, and we take recyclable containers back with us. So if you, uh, if you can make a concerted effort on your, on your own part to do as businesses do and, and with their supply chains and can consider yourself as a supply chain, then you don't bring any, anywhere near as much. Maybe read your newspapers online instead of uh, having the, the actual newspaper brought in. Oh, thank God Bob's not here. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, there's, there's a long list of things that you can do, and I'm just throwing out one or two here. You can listen and, to more radio news. That's what you can do. <laughs> and, and I say that, but I read five newspapers every day, so I'm, <laughs> I don't mean to be a hypocrite when I say read your newspapers online, so I, I, I wasn't necessarily. <laughs> Wanting into our first phone caller of the afternoon, we have Greg on the phone line from Terre Haute. Greg, thanks for calling in to Noon Edition. Thank you for taking my call. It's a really uh, very informative conversation. I really appreciate what the individual has done with her business to design and to create that kind of opportunity. I um, I just wondered if we could talk a little bit more about the position of Indiana. And um, I, my sense is is that we are kind of underfunded and undersupported and what IDEM tries to do and other entities try to do to create an environment where sustainability and growing green is actually an element of our planning, our government, our decisioning in the General Assembly, things like that. And rather than thinking that we're doing excellently, that actually we're making progress, but where do we actually grow that and how do we change some of the statistics about our air quality and water quality and things like that? All right, I'd Greg. That like sounds like a I'm good question. Thinking, I think we'll I, let uh, we'll let Pam field that one first. Well, thanks for calling in today, Greg. That is a good question. And so, let's think in terms of sustainability. Are we only talking about energy usage or recycling, or are we talking about other ways of minimizing a business's footprint in the environment? So I'm going to um, talk a little bit about some of the projects that we worked on this year that reused existing industrial buildings. And I want us to think in terms of sustainability and building new buildings versus reusing buildings. So um, we found that the federal government, when they were implementing their Department of Energy programs over the past two years, um, they have a scoring system that actually rewarded the use of existing buildings. And for us, that allowed us to have numerous successful projects that went into industrial communities, into existing industrial buildings, and most importantly, with existing transportation infrastructure in place, particularly rail. And I think that the impact of those projects would be that rather than going, you know, 20 miles from the nearest city and building a new 500,000-square-foot manufacturing facility in a cornfield requiring all of the infrastructure being brought to the site, that those facilities were able to be reused. And um, let me give you an example of a couple of those. One of them would have been the, um, in Tipton, Indiana, it would have been the Gatrag building that was built for the 
uh, Chrysler Gatrag partnership, which unfortunately did not um, come to fruition. Uh, but we have a solar panel manufacturer that has taken over that building again. But that was in a cornfield. It, well, it, pardon? <laughs> Wasn't that a, that was in a cornfield? But they're reusing the building, the existing building that was already there. The new company that's coming in uh, is Abound Solar. So they were able to come in and reuse an existing building rather than going having their own. But that building was only about five years old. It had been sitting there empty. Exactly. No, it was definitely set up to be a boondoggle, but now it could be a a better story. Exactly. But most importantly, the the new company that came in did not go build a 500,000-square-foot facility in a cornfield somewhere else. So let me give you an example of another one. We've got Progress Rail, which makes energy-efficient locomotive engines. They've taken an existing building in Muncie, Indiana, the ABB building, which has been sitting empty for, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know if it's been 15 years, but a significant amount of time. And uh, one of the benefits of them choosing to locate in that building is they have access to existing rail infrastructure, which means, again, we don't have to do land disturbance. We don't have to have the communities investing all of this money in infrastructure that's already in place. So it encourages us to be thinking about those projects in terms of sustainability also. Let me uh, ask you a question about that, because one of the things that we talk about when I, when I talk with our Ask the Mayor guests, one of the things we talk about is when you have a company that comes in and you want to get an economic development benefit from that company, we talk about these multiplier effects. And so you have a company that's going to come in and it's going to create 50 jobs, but it's also going to create construction jobs when you're building things. And it's going to have these other ancillary effects on the community. The the money that goes out in salaries is going to go to the local restaurants who are operating and who are serving these people lunch and on and on and on and on and on. So in a certain regard, you you could see this if you were playing devil's advocate as anti-economic development because you would want in some ways these buildings to be built in order to revitalize the economy of an area, especially places like Kokomo and Muncie and Tipton and Elkhart that have really been hard hit by the recession. Um, But on the other hand, there is certainly a logic to reusing an abandoned building or a disused building. Um, how How do you toe that line between those two? That's a good question. Um, I think that you need to think in terms of um, what is being generated by the project in terms of tax revenue. So um, the incentives that are offered on economic development projects are a partnership between the state and the local community. And the state will be incentivizing what we tax, payroll, corporate income. The communities are going to be incentivizing what they tax, which is primarily going to be property taxes. So in many instances, these brownfield buildings, uh, the company may have gone bankrupt. You may have a facility where no property taxes are being paid on this property at all. And if you do get a new owner to come in, purchase it or lease it, um, you find that the community is now generating a source of income where there was none. Um, I think that... um, you know, we want to have these construction jobs. They're obviously very important. We do lots of new construction on many of our projects. I was just giving you an example in some of our brownfield projects. But at the same time, if infrastructure in terms of road improvements, um, water improvements are required to serve a facility, the local community has to have the uh, revenue source to fund those improvements. So it's a delicate balance between how much tax revenue are we generating and how much tax um, how, how much would do, what would be our outlay to make those infrastructure improvements? Uh, Melinda, you mentioned all the problems that you had about trying to put up a new building mm-hmm. uh, with codes and so forth. Did you consider using an older building? Well, because of our very specific needs of being an automotive repair facility, the only building that really became available over the course of time when we've been in operation was uh, on 11th Street, where the Habitat Restore is now. Mm-hmm. When they moved out to the highway, that land was already purchased. It never hit the market mm-hmm. and has been sitting there waiting, I believe, for some type of a housing development or a, apartments to go in. So the only building that was really would have been functional and an improvement over what we had, that was the only one that was available. Mm-hmm. And like, even it wasn't really available. And it wasn't so, yeah, really available. Yeah. I'd like to remind our listeners, you've got about 10 minutes to call us at 812-855-0811 or 877-285-9348. I'd like to get a weigh-in from all of you on uh, 
a report recently that showed that only something like a couple percent of the state's businesses, maybe somewhere between one and three percent, are classified as green jobs. Um, and, and I sort of wondered what a reasonable goal might be for that, uh, because it occurred to me that you know this is still a, a burgeoning area that is increasing and increasing, and so maybe we're not early on enough yet to be able to say that one or two percent is really lousy for the state of Indiana. But the lens under which I'd like to look at that is what's the what's the reasonable goal? I mean, obviously, Melinda, I think you could say all of your jobs could be labeled as green jobs if you want to. Um, so I'd like to to get your impression as a, a, a small business owner and then, and then Pam and Benjamin on a, a wider scale about what you think is a reasonable goal for creating green, sustainable jobs in Indiana. I think the difficulty would be first defining what is a green job because we all know that we can manipulate a description to fit what we want it to fit. Um, if we have a, t- uh, a maintenance person at our facility that handles all of the outgoing recycling and takes care of, of – uh, uh, making sure that we're using non-toxic cleaners and so forth. I mean, is he is that a green job? Because he spends the other half of his time shuttling people back and forth to work in our Toyota Prius. So <laughs> the idea becomes, first you have to define what a green job is. In my mindset, it would be something that could be working at a, at a solar panel uh, manufacturer. But it could also be someone who's doing composting. So the, the definition, I think, would have to be made more precise. I would not necessarily say that my employees are a green employee. They work for a facility that is housed in a green building and has a series of green processes that try to make what we do more sustainable. Whether you would call that position green or that it's just a position where the process that they work under it requires them to act in a green way. You, you bring up a really good point because you you could have, you know, a shop like yours that's dedicated to being sustainable, um, but you say you, you wouldn't necessarily consider those green employees. You could also have the other option would be let's have a com- a, a solar wind turbine parts manufacturer mm-hmm. who throws away a whole bunch of garbage. Exactly. I mm-hmm. mean, it seems like you've got these these type these types of loopholes or <laughs> definition problems that would be hard to overcome, right? Well, you also have the aspect that, you know, the, the green or sustainable title that's being used. I go back to when it was called environmentalism. So the idea of labeling a business such, just what does that business have to do to truly be able to market itself as green? The same way as what does that job have to be to truly be green? And I think that Benjamin can talk in some degree to what the Chamber of Commerce is trying to do or they're trying to create standards that says you do have to qualify. You do have to fulfill these things. So the question becomes, when you talk about a 2% figure, what were they measuring? What did what was their definition of what a green job is? Yeah, that's what we're trying to do with our, our sustainable business certification program is to, to define what a sustainable business is. Mm-hmm. Uh, what the chamber is doing is they're encouraging people to be green or sustainable. So they're getting them thinking about it, which is great, getting going in the right direction. But we're trying to come up with some definitions of exactly what it is and then have teams go around and inspect them to make sure that they're doing what they say that they're doing and, and look and if they have a transparent uh, sustainability report. So if they're really doing what they say they're doing and if the numbers match up. Pam, to your knowledge, does the state have any sort of a, a metric or a goal on what it would like in terms of its green workforce? Well, um, I think I would like to comment on what Melinda said about the definition. So, you know, the fact that we have one to three percent of our uh, of our jobs are, are classified as green jobs. Um, I think that we've been leaders in the past eighteen to twenty four months in manufacturing the products that are used to generate clean energy. For example, um, the lithium ion batteries that um, have been so successful along the I sixty nine corridor. Um, we've been leaders in um, manufacturing products that are used in solar and wind. Um, we're leaders in ethanol and biofuels and also our clean coal projects. So I don't think that any of those were classified as clean or green jobs. And in our minds, we're building the technology in Indiana that the entire United States is going to benefit from. One more time, our phone number is today, 812-855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Um, 
I wanted to know also about LEED certification. We touched real, real generally on that. And I know one of the ways that getting back to the whole loophole idea that, for instance, a city or a university like IU can use LEED certification is you can retrofit an old building, get LEED points, and then have those actually applied toward a building that is not at all the building you were just working on to make it look greener than it actually is. And so I wondered if you think, uh, and we've talked a little bit about the city and the state coming up with ways to certify whether something is green or sustainable. Do we need to close these sort of loopholes before we can truly say that we have a grasp on being able to certify these sorts of things? Well, lead certification, when we researched it for our facility, again, getting back to being this small-sized business that's not a residence and it's not a huge hospital, lead certification does require you paying engineers to certify things. We did have our building certified, and part of that was for some of the federal tax credits that we got. But the difficulty with LEED for a business my size was there's a rather large payout to be able to finally get that certification. And for us, my mind... To whom does the payout go? To... Would be the U.S. Green Business Council, I believe, is the the overseeing agency. But they're a nonprofit business, so so no one's making money off of that. But you're paying for the inspectors to come. You're paying for people to process Mm -hmm. your paperwork. Mm -hmm. and, And so that's what you're paying for. So it's... I mean, obviously... It's, they're not overcharging, but when we looked at the cost to have a certification on our building, because we were building in 2009, after the market crashed, after our investments kind of went away to help finance the building, we decided that the LEED certification, we'd much rather take whatever extra money we had and do the solar panels or put in the rain garden because the LEED certification in itself does not help the environment. The other elements that we could add would. Well, it helps. The LEED certification helps the environment because you are LEED certified. But what it, you don't get any financial payback for being a LEED certified building. So you get its bragging rights, basically. Exactly. Uh, and, if, and if you want to use it for public relations or if you want to use it mm-hmm. as part of your promotional uh, works, mm-hmm. that's why it's being used. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not, you, don't, you don't get tax breaks. You don't get money back. Mm-hmm. You don't uh, save anything mm-hmm. by doing it. In fact, it, as you point out, it's yeah. a cost. And it's a wonderful thing. But for us, it was if we were building that, you know, $5 million hospital, putting the LEED certification in that budget wasn't as big of a hit mm-hmm. as putting it into mm-hmm. our budget. And right. so it's a matter of saying maybe they need to look at something in between. You know, something that small businesses can go for that might not be on the same scale as a the new Indianapolis Airport was was a lead certified building. Mm-hmm. When it, it was the I understand it was the largest one this side of the Mississippi when they built it a couple of years ago. Wow. I, and I'm not sure about the you don't get your certification right away. You have to wait like a year, maybe even two years before you get your certification because they have to come and monitor your your uh, energy usage, mm-hmm. your your people usage, and to make sure you're doing what you said you're going to be doing when you did the application. Mm-hmm. So you don't get the certification until uh, much later. That makes sense. And to businesses that are out there, what Benjamin brought up as having bragging rights, uh, we put in a new website about the same time we moved into our new building uh, two years ago. And we do have a lot of customer feedback by saying, we bring our car here because you are a green facility. We bring our car here because we know whatever byproducts will be handled properly. Mm. You know, we don't, we've got a little joking about the new building or the bill's going to go up now that you're in this really nice building. Because it actually looks so nice from the front. We actually had people walk around behind because they didn't think it was an auto shop. <laughs> but the, the fact is, is that it is a marketing tool. And it's a marketing tool where we, we don't tend to advertise outside of WFIU. And we're appreciative of that. And I'm afraid we're actually going to have to leave it there because we've run out of time. But my thanks to the three of you for being here today. It's been a great conversation. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, for Dalton Main, for Mike Pashkash, for Gretchen Frazee, I'm Stan Jastrzewski. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Also, Premier Ortho, a division of Premier Healthcare, helping people living with injuries and chronic back, spine, or joint pain to get back on their feet. Premier Ortho, 333-1933. 
online at mypremierortho.com. 